It's Notes from America with Kai Wright. And before you reach to check your device, no, this isn't Kai Wright, so you don't need to check your hearing either. It's all right. It's me, Brian Lehrer, host of The Brian Lehrer Show. Recently, special counsel Jack Smith announced the indictment of former President Donald Trump, as you probably know, for conspiring to defraud the United States and disenfranchise voters in the 2020 election. And during that announcement, Smith made a point to encourage everyone to read that indictment in full. So on my show, I invited Kai and a few other friends of the show to read the major excerpts in the indictment live on the air. You should check it out. There'll be a link in the description of this episode. But the Trump and democracy question is not just for the courts. It's also for the political system, obviously. And Trump is allegedly trying to straddle the two by making what appear to be threats against people in the legal system that he's defending as political free speech for him as a candidate. So we invited Charlie Sykes, former longtime conservative talk show host and co-founder of the news organization The Bulwark, on my show to discuss the breaking news and help take your calls. And Kai asked that I share that conversation with you all. So here's my conversation with Charlie Sykes, founder and editor-at-large of The Bulwark. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. And thanks for your many appreciative comments about Friday's show, on which we read out loud most of the Trump, January 6th, and Big Lie indictment. So many historians and legal analysts, I don't have to tell you, are calling this one of the most important cases for American democracy in the history of the American legal system. Later in the day on Friday, I don't think it was in response to our show, but later in the day after our show on Friday, Trump posted this, which sounds to a lot of people like a threat. If you go after me, I'm coming after you. He posted those words. If you go after me, I'm coming after you. So he's been told to respond in a court filing by 5 o'clock this afternoon in regard to that. Is he trying to, I don't know, activate lone wolf domestic terrorists to attack prosecutors? Is that an illegal intimidation of prospective jurors? What is that post in a legal context? That story is just beginning to unfold. And then there are the politics that flow from this indictment, obviously. We spent our several segments last week. I'll let you in behind the scenes a little bit on this. We spent our several segments last week consciously avoiding the politics, just looking at the details of the indictment first and the possible defenses and burdens of proof for the government. We thought that should all come first. But this is all happening in the context of a Republican presidential primary, where Trump, of course, is a candidate, where the other candidates know that the Republican voting base tends to support Trump, regardless of what the law or verdicts may be. And at least one of his competitors, former, uh, former Vice President Pence, might be a witness in the trial. Now, on CBS Face the Nation yesterday, Pence went this far in saying Trump's actions after the 2020 election should be disqualifying. I truly do believe that, uh, you know, no one who ever puts himself over the Constitution should ever be president of the United States. Other candidates are taking their own positions. We'll play how Ron DeSantis is kind of trying to be on both sides of it coming up. But let's dig in. Our guest this time is Charlie Sykes, former longtime conservative talk show host in Milwaukee, co-founder of the news organization The Bulwark, 
and the author of nine books, including explicitly conservative ones earlier in his career with titles like A Nation of Victims, Dumbing Down Our Kids, and A Nation of Moochers. Similarly, he was co-editor of the National Review, that conservative magazine, of the National Review College Guide. But he began to call out Trump, if you don't know Charlie Sykes' story, he began to call out Trump for his anti-democracy campaigning in the 2016 presidential race. And Charlie's most recent book is How the Right Lost Its Mind. He's also an MSNBC contributor now and was one of the hosts in the WNYC series, Indivisible, series that we did when Trump was new in office in 2017. Charlie, always great to talk to you. Welcome back to WNYC. It is great to be back with you, Brian. Um, could, could I submit a question for Dear Prudy, by the way, for later this week? <laughs> uh, sure, know? sure. Yeah, yeah yes, what, what would yes. it be? I'm curious. Um, it, as long as it's anonymous, it would be, um, you know, I, I, I find myself um, supporting a, an elderly decompensated uh, uh, criminal who, who continues to rant and try to intimidate witnesses, insult jurors, and show contempt for the judge. Is there any way out of this relationship? Signed. Republicans. I don't know. I, it, it, is, it is an extraordinary moment, isn't it? It absolutely is. And uh, maybe we will put that anonymous question, <laughs> which uh, certainly did not come from one Charles Sykes no. uh, to, uh, to Prudy on Thursday. Before we get to actual political analysis, can you give us a take on Trump's post? If you go after me, I'm coming after you. It's threatening and obnoxious, obviously. But why is it a matter for a court proceeding today, not just for a political response? Uh, well, first of all, I mean it's 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 Donald Trump once again going full mob boss. Um, it, it is it is designed to intimidate. It is designed to threaten. And I'm going to be very interested to see what the judge does, because I am not a lawyer, but uh, I have uh, listened to other legal experts saying that if any other defendant was behaving the way that Donald Trump was behaving, there would be sanctions. Uh, up to and possibly including uh, being jailed for contempt of court. Now, I don't think that's going to happen in this particular case, but uh, in effect. Donald Trump is daring the judge to do something. And, it, you know, it is one of those interesting moments. You know, what do you do? Um, I mean, last Thursday, last Thursday at his arraignment, uh, the magistrate specifically and very pointedly warned him, you know, do not attempt to intimidate witnesses. Uh, do not attempt to, to influence jurors. And what does he do? Literally less than 24 hours after he promised the federal court that he would uh, behave himself, he puts out that all caps uh, threat. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the prosecution and uh, and the judge in this case handles that. Yeah, you used the word daring. I was thinking of the word baiting. Yeah. Like he's no. almost baiting the judge to silence it's, him in some way that will help him politically. Like no, it does feel like that. In fact, I wrote in my newsletter this, this morning, I said, you know, okay, non-snarky question for a Monday morning. Does Donald Trump want to go to jail? Does Donald Trump want to be a political martyr in some way? Because otherwise... Why would he spend the weekend in a series? And it, that was just one of the social media bleats that he put out. You know, he attacked uh, the city of Washington. He attacked the prosecutor as deranged. He attacked the judge saying that he's going to push for her recusal. Uh, this is extraordinary behavior from a criminal defendant, uh, you know, much less a criminal defendant who is, is facing right now 78 different felony charges and if he's convicted of all of them and receives the maximum sentence, faces 640 years or more in jail. And Brian, most criminal defendants, um, I, I'm, I'm guessing, would listen to their lawyers or their lawyers, would, we hope they listen to them, saying, you know, um, 
keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, and whatever you do, do not attack the prosecution and the judge in these very, very personal terms. But Donald Trump is Donald Trump, and he's not going to stop doing this, is he? And it seems to be politically advantageous for him so far. Uh, Understanding that you're not a lawyer, do you have a short version of what's supposed to happen by today's five o'clock deadline? Well, he's uh, again, just, you know, as as you set up here, um, the prosecution filed that extraordinary motion on Friday um, referencing uh, his his threat, his not very veiled threat. You know, if you come after me, I'm going to come after you. Uh, Trump's lawyers asked for a postponement and the judge shut them down and said, no, um, by five o'clock today, you have to answer. Uh, you have to answer this motion asking for a protective order, which should not be confused with a gag order. I've heard people use them interchangeably. They're not the same thing. And so I expect that we will see this. What I find, what I think is interesting is whether at some point the judge is going to invite Donald Trump and his lawyers into her courtroom and say, would you explain? I would like you to explain what you meant by these posts. And, you know, one after another, have Donald Trump or his attor- attorneys Explain why she should not think that they were um, attempts to intimidate uh, and and bully jurors, witnesses, uh, prosecutors, and the judge herself. Do you know the difference between a gag order and a protective order? I don't. I think the protective order basically says you are not allowed to um, disclose certain evidence that is being presented. A gag order would limit his ability to engage in, I think, you know, more general speech. So I think the prosecutor is being very careful in, because he understands that uh, if it is perceived as a gag order, Donald Trump will come out and say, look, you know, I am the first presidential candidate in history whose First Amendment rights have been stepped on by this uh, this uh, deranged prosecutor. Mm. So I, I, I think you're, you're going on a more traditional – I mean, protective orders are not unusual in a case like this. Uh, it is just basically saying do not disclose sensitive information um, that would be, again, decided by, by the judge in this case. Right, but sensitive information like grand jury proceeding information that's supposed to be kept secret, right. that's different than that implied threat, or it's not even implied, it's stated, uh, if you're going after me, I'm coming after you. That's right. You know, and, you know, one of the things that, that Trump is trying to confuse is the whole question of free speech versus speech in the, in the furtherance of a, of a crime. Um, all conspiracies, all frauds involve speech. Witness intimidation is speech. Lying to the FBI is speech. Simply because you say something does not mean that you are absolutely protected. And if you are trying to uh, intimidate or bully witnesses uh, or jurors, which I think Donald Trump is trying to do, um, you know that is going to catch the attention of the court because the rules in federal court are quite different than the rules on social media. Now, again, this is a tough job for the judge because she's the, the, it's like three, four-dimensional chess here. She, she knows the attacks that are coming. She knows the political implications. But I also think she needs to keep in mind that, you know, no other political, no other criminal defendant would be able to behave in this particular way and not at least be um, sternly talked to by the judge. Listeners, any likely Republican primary voters want to say how you're leaning as of today and how the Trump indictments affect your thinking or at least are affecting it in these early days after uh, the most serious ones, which came out last Tuesday from special counsel Jack Smith, uh, 
the ones about subverting an election, subverting docu- uh, doc- uh, democracy. I think everybody agrees these are the most serious charges that Trump is facing. Are they affecting your thinking at all? If you are a likely Republican primary voter in any state, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, or ask Charlie Sykes, the uh, uh, co-founder of the news organization, The Bulwark, a question, 212-433-WNYC, call in or text 212-433-9692 or tweet at Brian Lehrer. All right, Charlie, presidential campaign politics. Mm-hmm. There were some polls taken just before the indictment was handed up by the grand jury last Tuesday, as you know, that found Trump dominating the Republican primary field and neck and neck with Biden in a hypothetical one-on-one matchup. But the previous indictments of Trump, as I was just indicating, serious though they may have been, were not as serious and about existential democracy questions as these charges are on trying to subvert an election. So do you have any indications that this indictment and the incredibly detailed narrative that we aired much of on Friday, including Trump telling Pence he's too honest and Giuliani admitting in Arizona that he had theories but no evidence to flip the election in that state, and almost all of Trump's major appointees documented uh, by Jack Smith telling Trump there's no evidence of election determinative fraud. Any indication all of that is beginning to move the needle in any way six days later? Well, I'm trying to break out of the doom loop of the punditry that says that nothing ever matters because last week did feel that something matters. But, you know, having said that, look, Brian, you and I have been having this conversation now for like six years, right? Going back to 2017, where the Republican party never breaks with Donald Trump will always adjust its standards. Um, You know, there may be moments like January 7th when they say this is, uh, this is insane. We need to move on. And then they, they come back. Uh, So it's always, it's always risky and dangerous and probably wrong to say that the patterns of the past will will change. But, you know, to be honest, uh, no one knows the answer to this question because we've never been here. We've never remotely been in a situation where you've had someone like Donald Trump facing this kind of legal challenge, behaving in this way. And there, there was one poll that I saw reference to uh, late last night, uh, the Marquette University Law Poll, which is highly respected. They have a national poll. That suggests that that you know, despite the conventional wisdom that Donald Trump is not hurt by these indictments, that in, in fact his approval rating among Republicans is has dropped by about six points. The disapproval rating is up by six points. Again, this may this may be temporary. Uh, so, you know, and and also over the weekend, um, and I'm I'm not overstating this. I'm not, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be naive about what mm-hmm. Republicans do because we we know what the pattern is here. But it was interesting. Watching what Chris Christie, Bill Barr, Mike Pence, and even Ron DeSantis were saying. Now, I, again, um, this is way too late, um, and 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 I wish they would have been much stronger. I have used language to describe Chris Christie and Bill Barr that I could not use on your show <laughs> because of various you know FCC regulations. But th- what they're saying is is important because these are the voices coming from within the room. It's, it's not from MSNBC hosts. It's not from the resistance, not from Occupy Democrats. It is from Republicans, conservative Republicans, who are now making the case that what Donald Trump did, even if it didn't violate criminal law, m- makes him unfit, disqualified to be president of the United States. Now, 
I don't know if that breaks through. I don't know if that changes the dynamics. It's unlikely. But it's hard for me to imagine, Brian, that this drumbeat is a political asset for Donald Trump, that, that he's going to be moving any skeptical voters into his column. You know, certainly in a general election, I can't see that it helps him with independents or Democrats or or disaffected Republicans. But the the, the increased willingness, and again, it's maybe only tentative, and 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 we've seen these guys go back and forth. Willingness to really go after him uh, is interesting, and it might actually penetrate that alternative reality bubble that he uh, you know that is, has done so much to shape our politics. So we'll see. Um, we played the Mike Pence clip earlier saying nobody who puts themselves above the, uh, above the Constitution should be president of the United States. So that was pretty clear. I said we'd play a clip showing how DeSantis is trying to play both sides of this to some degree. And here is that clip. It's about 30 seconds. He's responding to a question asked of him at a campaign event on Friday. The election is what it is. All those theories that were put out did not prove to be true. But what I've also said is the way you conduct a good election that people have confidence in, you don't change the rules in the middle of the game. You don't ballot harvest. You don't do Zuckerbucks. And clearly, uh, having the agencies work with um, Facebook to censor things like Hunter Biden, that's unfair. So it was not an election that was conducted the way I think we want to, but that's different than saying like Maduro stole votes or something like that. And I think those theories, you know, prove to be unsubstantiated. So what's your analysis of the position Ron DeSantis is trying to carve out for himself there? Well, he, he's on the tightrope, isn't he? I mean, he does kind of want it both ways. He uh, doubled down on that in this NBC interview with, I think, uh, Dasha Burns, and uh, she pressed him on the question, okay, did 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 Joe Biden win this election? And he says, yes, of course, uh, you know, Donald Trump lost the election. Joe Biden is the president. Ron DeSantis should have started with this. I mean, why was Ron DeSantis not saying this six months ago? Why was he not saying it 12 months ago or 24 months ago? Um his campaign has been floundering, and it's taken him a very, very long time to come to a position that should not be controversial. I mean, the fact that it is considered in some circles, uh, some Republican circles, outrageous that he's acknowledging that Donald Trump lost the election is a sign of you know how much that window has been moved. So, I mean, Ron DeSantis has, has you know, at some level, he's figured out that he actually has to run against Donald Trump. Um, but I don't think he's figured out that quite yet. I think that Ron DeSantis was thinking that he would just, you know, be the guy. And when somebody else took out uh, Donald Trump, when Donald Trump magically went away, was taken out by the magical political unicorn, uh, that he would be the last man standing. Now, I think he's you know, probably belatedly realizing if you, you know, want to beat Donald Trump, you actually have to beat Donald Trump. You have to go at Donald Trump. But for Ron DeSantis, it might be too late. Here is Jeffrey in Manhattan, who says he's a likely Republican primary yes. voter. I, I knew there was a Republican primary voter somewhere in Manhattan, and I think we found him. 
Jeffrey, thank you for calling in. Hello. Hi. Uh, yes, I am a Republican uh, primary voter. Absolutely. As I vote every election and uh, not going to miss this one. And I am not voting for Mr. Trump by any means. I think he should give it all up and go play Benino Mussolini on Broadway. He's got the facial gestures now. I'm perfect. Do you have a candidate? No, I don't. Um, I'm examining them all. They're certainly not going to be Mr. Jefferson. So for our listeners who are thinking, oh, this guy's not really a Republican, what makes you a Republican? Ah, uh, well, what makes you a Republican? I, I, I don't know. What, it's Nelson Rockefeller and his, uh, his uh, uh, political viewpoints sort of are starting in his mind. And I think there's, there used to be a lot of Republicans who uh, it was not a dirty word. In Manhattan, it is. People do say to me, well, you're not really a Republican. You're sort of like middle of the road. Well, we used to be a lot of middle-of-the-road Republicans. So, I don't know. I grew up in Park Slope, so there were yeah. a lot of middle-of-the-road Republicans back then in the 60s. Who'd you vote for in the 2016, Mayor John 2016 Republican presidential primary? I, I voted for Mr. I, I, Zappa, I did go Democrat. I voted for Mr. Biden in uh, 2020. And, oh, 2020. Uh, but I'm um, saying the Republican and, primary and, in 2016. I'm just curious. I was still a Democrat voter, so I, I, I oh. hadn't switched over. I switched oh. over. I see. Okay, Jeffrey, thank you very much. Well, I'm pretty confused about where he is, but let's try another one. If we had a real or imagined um, Manhattan Republican on the line, now we have one from Brooklyn. Matthew in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Thank you for calling in. Thanks, Brian. It's good to be here. So I've been uh, Republican all my life. Uh, well, <laughs> since I could register, uh, and I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump in the primary, and it has nothing to do with the uh, current indictment. And in fact, I think the issues in the current indictment were well covered in the second impeachment and in the January 6th investigation. Uh, and I think there's much to uh, indict Donald Trump, uh, not in the legal sense, having nothing to do with this. And I don't think that this is going to change people's opinion. I think those who, that rump of the Republican Party that supports him is not going to change, and the rest of us were well done with him a while ago. Same two questions I asked the last caller. If you voted in the 2016 Republican presidential primary, who did you vote for then, and do you have a candidate you're keying on now? I honestly don't remember who I voted for in the 16 primary, mm -hmm. although I knew it wasn't, I know it wasn't Donald Trump because I knew Donald Trump when I was doing real estate in New York in the 80s and 90s and have hated him or despised him for well longer than most people. Um, and in uh, 2020, I voted for Biden. Unfortunately, I had to, and I may have to make that choice again. And in the coming primary, I'm looking at Tim, right now, I'm looking at mm -hmm. Tim Scott and Chris Christie. Matthew, thank you very much. Here, I think, is a likely Trump Republican primary voter from Bergen County. You're on WNYC. Thank you for calling in. Hi there. Hi. Hey, so you're likely to vote in the Republican primary. New Jersey votes so late, but if it still matters once it comes around to Jersey, uh, you're still leaning Trump. Is that what you told our screener? Yes, I, I definitely am leaning towards Trump. And the more indictments and impeachments and things they throw at him, 
the more likely I would be to vote for him. I think that the Democrats are using taxpayer money as, I hate to use his words, but as a witch hunt. They have not stopped attacking him since he took office and he won, and they wouldn't let him win, and they're still persecuting him. And I want to know, what are they afraid of? Are they afraid of him uncovering things that taxpayers shouldn't have to pay for? I just don't understand this pursuit. And he's not the nicest person in the world in political terms, but I have a feeling he's a very nice person, you know, if you get to know him. I don't know that for a fact, but I think that. And I'm an educated uh, person who lives in a, you know, kind of an affluent town, not that I'm affluent, um, in Bergen County, raised five children here, I'm a teacher. So I fit, you know, some of the demographics of being mm-hmm. leaning towards the left. However, I cannot. Let me ask you one follow-up question, and that is if you've read or heard on media coverage any of the specifics of the January 6th and, um, you know, uh, alleged uh, uh, disenfranchise indictment and disenfranchisement indictment that came out last week, like the exchange that he had with Pence, where Pence, where he told Pence, you're too honest when Pence wouldn't go along, or that long list of his own key advisors, his appointees who were telling him after the election, you know, there is no amount of fraud here that's, you know, that would flip the outcome. Have you seen any of those details or heard about them and have a reaction? I've, I've read them, I've heard them, and I know that, you know, people have interests. You know, Pence has his own interest now in mind. Of course he's going to flip. And I, I just really think, you know, Trump is not perfect, but I think he thinks about how to run the company, I mean, the country like a business, you know, and get things back on track, that things were a lot better when he was in office than, you know, this unfortunately aging, uh, you know, aristocrat who's in office. And everything that the Democrats do, nothing. And the Republicans are under constant scrutiny, and they're really the hardworking backbone of this country. And I think January 6th had a lot more to do with Democrat manipulation than actually, you know, these people who were manipulated, you know, to do the things that they supposedly did. Wait, Biden's, but just one, let me, let me challenge you on one thing, then then I'm going to let you go, and I really appreciate your call. Biden, with his background, is an aristocrat more than Trump, with well, his background? Trump, is, he comes up from hard work in real estate. He's not an aristocrat by From any inheritance, means. though, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. You know, someone who has, like Biden has seven homes. You know, it's just ridiculous what he has. And he's not really working for the people. He's working for the Democrats. You know, if if they were working for the people, a lot more problems in our country would be solved in these past couple of years than what's happening now. Thank you for your call. I really I really appreciate it. Feel free to call us again. Uh, Charlie, pretty interesting set of callers there. Uh, Yes, um, I I have bad news for the first caller who uh, describes himself as a Nelson Rockefeller Republican. Not many of those left Um, to the last caller. a couple of things. I mean, what, number one, reg- regarding 
Joe Biden is an aristocrat and Donald Trump is sort of a hardworking man of the people. Well, that's that is that is a take. But it's also interesting that I'm sorry, this is the alternative reality that looks at January 6th and say that that is the Democrats fault after Donald Trump summoned the mob to uh, Washington, D.C., said, be there. It will be wild, urge the march on the Capitol. But I mean, I think this is this is the. This is the political universe that we're in, that people have these completely different takes on all of this. And, you know, you know, you tried to walk through the fact that, you know, how many members of the cabinet, how many members of Trump's inner circle, you know, told him that he lost the election. But you could go further. How many members of the cabinet, how many people who were inside the room, former chiefs of staff, were trying to tell the American people, this is this guy is not fit for office. This person should not be allowed anywhere near power again. And it just doesn't register with some voters. And this is the reality. That last caller is representative of right now um, a strong plurality of the GOP primary base. And, and, there's, there, and there's no way around that. And I don't know how you break that or how many facts. Now, will the trial make a difference? The fact that, that one witness after another uh, from Trump world, and again, keep in mind that they will be Trump appointees, people who worked in the Trump White House. Who will testify again? Will that make a difference? Well, nothing's made a difference so far for uh, for, for many Trump supporters who honestly think that Donald Trump, you know, despite his his obsessions and his rants, is really deeply and sincerely concerned about solving the problems of the American people. When I think it's pretty clear, as Chris Christie says, that Donald Trump is about Donald Trump. You know, if if they if they won't if they won't listen to um, Rachel Maddow about this, maybe they'll listen to somebody like Chris Christie who also has seen Donald Trump up close and personal. Last question, Charlie. Do you think at all that the country would be better off if what Trump did regarding the post-election period is just handled by the political sector as opposed to the courts? He played extreme hardball, obviously, in trying to get state legislatures and Pence to flip the election without evidence of outcome-changing fraud. But he lost. They didn't do it. Why shouldn't that be the end of it, except for reports on what happened, like from the January 6th committee, and then his political opponents using his actions against them, against him? Well, I mean, either way, first of all, the way you describe it, I mean, that should be disqualifying in and of itself. But I do think that there is a principle um, that no person is above the law. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to cite Mitch McConnell. Uh, who justified his uh, ill-advised vote against that second impeachment. By the way, I'm guessing he regrets that very much now, uh, saying uh, this does not mean that uh, the president is not criminally liable for what he has done. You know, if, if in fact the criminal justice system did not hold him accountable, it would essentially be saying that no sitting president or ex-president will ever be held legally accountable for attempt, attempting to obstruct justice, misusing his office, uh, trying to obstruct official proceedings or conspiring uh, to overturn an election. And that is a dangerous, dangerous precedent. And we're very close to that. There are a lot of Republicans who now are quite explicitly arguing that Donald Trump should be immune from any sort of legal accountability. I'm not sure that that is what the founding fathers had in mind, because the president, as uh, Judge Chutkin said so memorably, the president is not a king. And Donald Trump was not king, and he's not president anymore. So, yes, I wish the political system had handled it. I wish the impeachment system had uh, – wish that had handled it. 
But right now, uh, we are left at the with the courts as perhaps the last bulwark for constitutional democracy. Bulwark. Interesting choice of words. Charlie Sykes, co-founder of the news organization, The Bulwark. Anything coming up that you want to promote, a podcast or anything else? Well, I mean, we're going to continue to uh, to cover this, obviously. Every Thursday, we do a, a podcast called The Trump Trials with our uh, partners from Lawfare. Um, and I have been talking with uh, other Republican candidates, including Asa Hutchinson, Chris Christie, and this week, I'll be talking with Will Hurd. And an interesting last thought that you gave us there that I'll just amplify for a second, because I hadn't thought of it this way. But if the Senate had convicted him, and removed him from office at the end there in those last days after January 6th, after the House impeached him, that would have disqualified him from becoming president again. Even being convicted and going to prison does not. Exactly. Exactly. You you can still be elected president of the United States uh, as a convicted felon. You can actually serve as president as a convicted felon. But if the Senate had convicted him that second time around, if Republicans had done what a thing to do was— he would have been disqualified from office forever, and that would have given them some short-term political pain, but we would not be where we are right now if they had done that, if they had done the right thing. Charlie Sykes, thanks a lot. Thank you. That was Charlie Sykes, founder and editor-at-large of The Bulwark, in conversation with me, Brian Lehrer. You can hear my show weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, live on WNYC. And you can hear Notes from America with Kai Wright, live on Sundays or as a podcast on Mondays and Thursdays. Take care.